Well, welcome to Sojourn. We're grateful that we are able to gather together this morning. And if this is your first time here, really grateful that God's brought you to be here. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's just good to be together as God's people. I can't believe it's already September. Isn't that crazy uh, that it's already September? We've already flown through the summer. And next Sunday, actually, we are going to celebrate the fact that Sojourn Church has gathered together now for two years. So that's crazy to me. Yeah, that's exciting. So uh, next week's our two-year anniversary. The week after that, we're actually going to have a big uh, celebration picnic at Van Dyke Park just to, to have a good time celebrating what God has done. So actually, we're going to take a break from our series that we've been in since April called Torah. We've been walking through the first five books of the Bible. Uh, but for the month of September, as we head into celebrating our anniversary, looking towards the fall and what God would have for our church as we head into our third year, uh, is just take a break and, and take a few weeks to talk about some things that I think are really important for us as a church. And so to begin that time, what we're going to do over these next three weeks is actually show a few videos of some people within our church, brothers and sisters in our church, just sharing about what God has done and is doing in their life. And so we're going to begin our time together this morning showing one of those those videos. So check this out. Uh, Well, thank you, Brian, for uh, sharing that with us. Hope you guys are encouraged by that. As I said, we're going to show some other videos over these next uh, few weeks. Thanks, Joe. Um, And uh, I hope they're encouraging and challenging to you as well as we walk through this series. Uh, We're going to be looking at a bunch of different texts over the next few weeks. And so uh, as we do every week, we preach from the Bible. So if you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand? Uh, Somebody's going to bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you just to be able to read along with us out of God's word this morning. And if you don't actually own a Bible, to give that to you as a gift uh, so that you can take it home, so you can read it throughout the week uh, and be encouraged by God's Word. Uh, Like I said, we're going to look at some different texts over these next three weeks and and talk about some things that I believe are critical for us as a church. Again, as we head into this third year uh, of our existence as a local church and as we head into the fall, uh, really thinking about what God would have us do. And as I've been thinking about this series, a question has come to my mind, and this question is this, what are we known? for? What are we known for? I mean, that's just an interesting question that we could ask about ourselves and life in general. What are you known for? I mean, if we think about there's different places that are known for different things, different people that are known for different things. I mean, take Virginia, for instance. Virginia is known for being the birthplace of the most U.S. presidents. Eight U.S. presidents were born in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Bristol, which is in Virginia and Tennessee is known as the birthplace of country music. Now, some of you care about that, and some of you could care less about that, but that's what Bristol's known for, along with the giant motor speedway that's there. Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina is not just a fun place to go on vacation. It's known for being the location of the first successful manned flight by the Wright brothers. People are known for different things. Thomas Edison is known for being the inventor of the light bulb. Alexander Fleming is known for being the discover, discovering penicillin. Hank Aaron is known for breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. But like all of these people and places, churches can be known for things as well. So the question for us is, what is Sojourn Church known for I hope that we'll be known for a lot of things in the life of this church. Not to make much of ourselves, not to promote a name, not to be about us, but because we are being faithful to who God has called us to be and what he's called us to do. But one of the most foundational things I want us as a church to be known for, for the totality of our existence as a local church, which I hope is until Jesus comes back, is that we are known for being a community of grace, a community of grace. 
And so that's what this series is going to be about. That's what we're going to focus on, grace, how it impacts us as a local church, how it influences everything we do. And so today we're going to begin by jumping into one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible in Titus chapter 3. And so before we do that, before we get into Titus this morning, let's just pray just for our time together this morning, but also for this series. Father, we're grateful to be able to gather together. And it's just crazy to think that as we approach our two-year anniversary, Lord, just what you've done over these last two years. And Lord, I'm thankful for Brian sharing just about your grace in his life, how you've ministered to him helped him, encouraged him through the ministry of the local church and seeing that as a means of grace to him. And Lord, that's true for all of us. And so I pray that as we jump in today into Titus chapter three, as we spend time over these next few weeks looking at what it means to be a community of grace with one another, Lord, that you would radically transform our lives. Lord, I don't know where everybody is in this room, but I pray that you would call people to yourself through our time in this series I pray that you'd encourage people who are struggling right now in their relationship with you or just in life in general. And Lord, I pray that you challenge us to be who you've called us to be as individuals and as a local community together. So Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to do a work that only you can do. We submit this time to you, knowing that it's not an eloquence of speech. It's not in wise words or things that are going to come out of my mouth. It's by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you do work in our hearts. And so we pray, we beg you, Lord, to do that work this morning and throughout these next few weeks. And Lord, we want you to be glorified not only in this place, but in our lives and in our community and in our world. And so we give this time to you now and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Titus chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read a few verses, verses 1 through 7, to begin our time in God's Word this morning. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the Apostle Paul, just for some context, is writing this letter to Titus, who's a pastor elder in, the, in a place called Crete. And he's writing to him to give him encouragement by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give him encouragement and direction for what it looks like for him to lead the church, but also to challenge the church, God's people, on how they should live in the context in which they live, what their daily lives should look like. Now, verses 1 and 2 of Titus chapter 3 give us a bit of context of what Paul's about to say. Paul reminds Titus to remind the church on how to live. He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's saying, be, be good citizens with where you live. Be obedient, Paul says. Whether that's to local authorities or most importantly to God. 
Be ready for every good work. You should be active in doing good in the community that you live in. And all of those few things right there are about society at large, how we live in our community. But then he drives it a little bit deeper. He says, speak evil of no one. Use your tongue for life, not death. Avoid quarreling. Be united together, not divided. Don't fight with one another. Be gentle, not harsh, not demeaning in anything that you say or do to anyone. And lastly, show perfect courtesy toward all people. You should seek to love, be gracious and kind to all people, whether believers or non-believers. All of those things have to do with relationships, both inside and outside of the local church. Paul's saying, Titus, remind the church, this is how you should live. As followers of Christ, this is how you should live. As the local church that exists in the context of a non-believing world, this is what you should look like in how you live your life. And what this does for us is this places us in real life, dealing with real people and real situations, situations that, are, uh, that bring struggles and difficulties, different dilemmas and dysfunction to life. It says this is the reality of life. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. There's a lot of people that don't want to submit their lives to God. So this is what you should be doing in the midst of that. Remind the church this is how they should live. But this is not just a reminder for a local church in Crete. It's a reminder for the local church in Fairfax as well. So the question we have to ask and where Paul goes is, why are we called to live like this? When a world is antagonistic towards God, why are we called to live this way? Why does it even matter? What if I don't want to engage with my community? What if I don't want to engage with the world around me? I like living in a small, closed community away from the influence of the outside world. Well, Paul's answer to that is very simply, it's because of who you were and it's because of who you are now. Verse three, he says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says for, in other words, here's the reason why you're to live the way that I've given instruction to live. Because we were just like the world. And Paul lumps himself in here. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to passions and pleasures. We lived lives of malice and envy. We hated others and we hated, were hated by others. This is like looking at old pictures of yourself. Do you ever do that? You go back to your parents' house or something. Or maybe you get tagged in a photo for Throwback Thursday. And you're looking at these old pictures of yourself and you think, man, I was so awkward. What was I wearing? Why did my mom let me go out of the house looking like that? And who in the world thought that cutting your hair that way was a good idea? We look at these old pictures and we laugh. And it's like Paul is pulling out this old family photo album and flipping through the pages, looking at old pictures. But these are not awkward family photos filled with perms and matching jumpers and knobby knee teenagers. These are pictures showing the darkness of sin and the reality of hard hearts towards God. And it's not just about the church at Crete. This is about your life. This is about my life. This is about your heart. This is about my heart. We are included in this also. These are our pictures. This is a synopsis of living life in the kingdom of self as opposed to the kingdom of God. When we live for the kingdom of self, Paul's saying this is what life looks like. This is the epitome of lostness. 
If we want to define lostness, then this is it. This is what Paul's laying out for it. And the fruit of that is very clear. It brings disunity and destruction of relationships. It brings dysfunction and ultimately it brings death. Broken relationships and broken lives. Paul's saying to us, the world still lives this way. So before you pass judgment on the world, don't forget that this is the way you once lived. Don't forget where you came from and where you were going. But then comes the but, the glorious contrasting conjunction of Scripture. Verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I kind of just want to close up and stop right there. That is good That is so good. That is amazing news. That gives me chills to even think about what Paul is saying to us in this. But there is a lot going on, and so I think it's worth our time to break it down a bit. See, Paul has reminded us of who we were, but now he reminds us us of who we are because of Christ. We were completely lost, living for ourselves, captive to sin, but God But God, in his loving kindness, in his goodness, appeared. God did not remain distant. He didn't remain, he wasn't disconnected. He wasn't uncaring or uninvolved. He wasn't apathetic towards our plight or our slavery or our bondage or our death. He came to save us. But Paul says he did not come to save us because we made the first move. He did not come to save us because we started to clean ourselves up. He did not come to save us because we began to reform ourselves. He did not come to save us because we did some righteous things. He didn't come to save us because we started to obey. He didn't come to save us because we met him halfway. Verse 5 makes it abundantly clear. He came to save us not because of works done in righteousness on our part, but according to his mercy. That's astounding, Sojourn. Absolutely astounding. God saved you because of who he is. Are you moved by that? Has that gotten old for you? Do you read that and just say, yeah, that's good, I guess. That should blow you away. He saved us not because of anything we did, but according to his own mercy. We owe it all to the mercy and grace of God, not a single thing in us. Even on your best day, you can do absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. On your best day, you can do nothing to work your way into heaven, into a relationship with holy God. We have no righteousness of our own. This goes back to what we saw in Exodus chapters 33 and 34 when God revealed his glory to Moses by preaching a sermon on his attributes. In Exodus chapter 34 It says this, the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He came to save us because that is who he is. 
We were enslaved to sin, dead in our trespasses and rebellion against God. We deserved his wrath, but God did not give us what we deserved. That's mercy. And God gave us more than we deserve. That's grace. And Paul says he saved us by regenerating us, by renewing us by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, if you are saved this morning, if that's a work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit were involved in rescuing you, reconciling you to God. Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross to bear the punishment for your sin, satisfying the wrath of God. That's mercy. You didn't get what you deserved. Christ got what you deserved. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding, ears to hear and eyes to see that we need a Savior, faith to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation and reconciliation. And he says he poured out the Spirit on you richly. He didn't withhold anything. He didn't keep it back. He poured it out on you richly. And God the Father justifies you. Paul says that is grace that God would justify you, that he would declare you right and not guilty because Christ paid the penalty for your sin and by faith you are now clothed in Christ's righteousness, not your own. And I love that Paul gives all these different aspects of what it means that he saved us. That's the main phrase in this verse. He saved us. And then Paul gives all these different aspects and dimensions to what it means that he saves you. In fact, this is just a big run-on sentence for Paul. He's so amped up about talking about this that he doesn't stop. He says in verse 5 that he regenerates us by the Holy Spirit. This means he brings restoration. He brings rebirth. It's being made completely new. And he says he does this by washing us clean. I love that imagery. We can understand what washing something means. We've all seen and can understand what it looks like to remove a stain. Recently, I've been trying to cut my grass every week because it grows quickly. And one of the things I'm trying to do is edge around the edges of the lawn on the sidewalk and driveway. And every time I do that, it just kicks up mud all over me. So my shins from my knees down are covered in dirt and mud. And this past week, as I it was getting cleaned up from being covered in mud. I could sit there in the shower and literally see dirt washing off of me down the drain. I understand that. I understand what it means to be made clean, to be washed clean. What Paul's saying is that you are washed clean, never to be stained again by the reality of your sin and rebellion. That is grace to you. But it's also grace that he renews us by the Holy Spirit. The sin the guilt, the shame, all of it taken away because of what Christ has done for you. That is grace. See, when God in his goodness and loving kindness appears to you to save you, everything changes for you. Absolutely everything changes for you. Right now. See, Sojourn, we can't look at this and see when it says that God saved us, that he saved us just for some future time. Like he put an approved stamp on our head and then shuffled us along to sit us on a shelf for something later. No, God saves you now. 
God redeems you now. He reconciles you now. He justifies you now. He adopts you now. He transforms you now. And he does it all for his glory. He does it for your good. And he does it for the good of the world. He saves you now and he saves you for the future. We are justified, Paul says, to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have an inheritance now. We have an inheritance now in Christ, but our inheritance is not merely eternal life. We enjoy our inheritance in the midst of eternal life. As one pastor says, our inheritance is new heavens, new earth, new body, new perfected relationships, new sinless sight of all that is good and glorious, and new capacities for a kind of pleasure in God that will exceed all your dreams. That is grace getting what you don't deserve now and forever, and it doesn't run out. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's going to take an eternity for you to understand God's grace. An eternity. When God saves you, he saves you to give you new birth for a new life. Cleansing from all that is past and renewal for all that is future. And it's nothing that you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to muster it up on your own. We were once enslaved, but he saved us. That's amazing, amazing, undeserved, unmerited grace to you. Now, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with being a community of grace? It has everything to do with that. If you are in Christ this morning, this is a picture of who you were and who you are now. But Jesus did not just save you merely as an individual. He saved you as an individual into a community. And this community, this church exists only because of grace. We are not a social club. We're not an organization. We are not a subculture. We are not a religious group. We are blood-bought sons and daughters of Almighty God who saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, Sojourn Church cannot be a community of grace without the gospel of grace. And grace replaces any perceived notion of freedom and autonomy. There's a false view out there, a false view of freedom that says that I I live my life on my own. If I'm going to follow God, that's going to put me under constraints. But that's a false idea. The actuality of our life is that we're enslaved. But when God's grace comes to bear, what it does is it places us into a family of redeemed people who are wholly dependent on God for all things. And that is good news for us. Our vision for our church is on a sign that sits out in the hallway before you come into this room to gather together. And it says this, that we exist, Sojourn Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who know the gospel, who live out the implications of the gospel, and who share the message of the gospel. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be disciples who truly know the gospel of grace. And when we know the gospel of grace, then we can be a community marked by and known for that grace. This is so important for us because every single thing we do as a community together must flow from this. Everything we do, anything any church ever does will flow from what's at the center of that church. And grace of the gospel is what needs to be at the center of this church so that everything we do flows out from that. 
That's what Titus 3 verses 1 and 2 are about. About how we should live now. Paul says it again in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, we do not do works to earn favor with God. Paul's made that abundantly clear. But no, now what we do is we do works because we've received favor from God. Because we've experienced grace. We've been saved, but now there are present and eternal implications for your life because of that. Listen, you cannot and will not have an impactful life in this world if you do not realize that God has called you out of this world. But has now sent you back into it with a new identity and a new Lord to live life differently. See, we don't just huddle up and wait for Jesus to come back. But we also just don't just go on living life as if nothing has changed. We live lives marked by and empowered by grace, a new life with a new focus. So today, there's just a few implications of this that I want to hit on for us as a church. The first one, when we are part of a, are, are a part of a community of grace, we understand our union with Christ and with one another. Let me say that again. When we are a part of a community of grace, we understand our union with Christ and with one another. Because of grace, you are now united with Jesus. And because we're united with Jesus, everything has changed for you. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 14 of Titus, he says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That means that we together belong to Christ now. We together are his possession, his church, his bride, the ones that he died for. That means that our identity, both individually and together, must be in Christ now. It can't be in anything else. It's not a church if it exists or finds its identity in anything else but Jesus. Being united with Christ should give us great hope and peace and comfort and joy. It reminds me of a line from a, a hymn that we sing called In Christ Alone. It says, For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So let me just stop right now and ask you this question. Where are you putting your hope this morning? Where are you finding your peace and your joy and your comfort? How do you identify yourself? Is it that you are Christ and he is yours? Look, there's nothing mediocre in Jesus. Nothing mediocre in him. Being part of a community of grace helps you to understand that. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus has set you free. But when we experience the goodness and loving kindness, mercy and grace of our God, it's not that God comes and cuts the ties and the bonds of slavery to set us free to run and live life on our own in freedom. This is not about getting a ticket to heaven punched. It's not about getting a free pass on life. Like I said, there's this false view of freedom that we think that apart from God, if we live our lives on our own, that we can live however we please. And so we, if we look at the gospel that way, if we look at grace that way, that God 
clears us of our sin, but then life just goes on as normal, then we don't understand grace. We don't understand what it means to be united with Christ. Our freedom is tied up in our union with Jesus. You are not free unless you're connected to Christ. You are not free unless you are in Christ. John 15, Jesus reminds us of this, telling us that we can do nothing apart from him. He is the true vine. It's by abiding in Jesus that we are able to bear good fruit, that we're able to do good works, that we're able to live in this world but not be of this world. And abiding in Jesus means that we must be a part of a community that's all about the grace that comes in and through him alone. We can't be disconnected individuals, but we must be an integral part of a body, a family of grace recipients. And I don't just mean showing up here on Sunday morning. You can come here on a Sunday morning and sit in a seat and be completely isolated. I'm talking about being a family together of brothers and sisters who rest on our union with Jesus together. See, you and I, if we are in Christ, we are united by grace because that's our most common characteristic with one another is that we need God's grace. We are saved because of mercy and the mercy and grace of God, nothing that we do. So listen, it doesn't matter how much theology you know. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you can do or how much money you make. It doesn't matter what your abilities or giftings are. It is the grace of God that binds you and me together. It's the grace of God that binds all of us together as a family. We have to be a community with one another. It's a direct implication of the gospel. It is a means of grace to you. It's a gift of grace to you. That God would place you into a family of others who are in desperate need of God's grace. So that we can remind each other of that. And that leads to our second point. The second thing is that when we are a part of a community of grace, grace is what we give to one another. When we are a part of a community of grace, grace is what we give to one another. Look, life is hard. I mean, can we acknowledge that? I think sometimes we think life is supposed to be easy when we follow Jesus, but the reality is life is hard. It's difficult. We face different struggles, whether it be with our own sin or unbelief or just difficulties and trials of life. But the gospel of grace speaks into all of those things. Just as an example, if we go back to verse 3, we see Paul give out these lists of things that used to be true for us. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to passion and pleasure. We were malicious and envious. We were hated by others and hated one another. That's who you used to be. But you were rescued out of that if you know Christ. Man, if we're honest though, do we sometimes find ourselves back in that same place? But the gospel of grace speaks to that. And as a community of grace, we need to remind one another of this. See, when we remind each other of the gospel, we see foolishness for what it is. We remind each other that because of grace, Jesus is our wisdom. He's our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. We remind each other that because of grace, we don't have to live foolishly any longer. When we remind each other of the gospel, we see disobedience as being contradictory to who we are now in Christ. We remind each other that because of grace, we can now and should walk in obedience to Jesus, our King. 
We remind each other that because of grace that all of life is lived before God in worship. When we remind each other of the gospel, we throw off the chains of slavery. We remind each other because of grace that we've been set free from sin. We remind each other that because of grace that we can put to death what is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When we remind each other of the gospel, we realize the futility of being malicious and envious and hateful towards others. All things that lead to death. We remind each other that because of grace that we're united together through the cross of Christ. We remind each other that because of grace that we now have all the riches of the kingdom of God. We remind each other because of grace that we can now bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, sojourn, a community of grace doesn't tell you to try harder. A community of grace doesn't tell you to do better. A community of grace tells you and reminds you of who you are. It says, remember who you are. It reminds you of God's mercy and grace now and how it affects your life now and forever. So practically, you may think, well, that's good to be a community of grace. It's good to give grace to one another. But when do we do this? When do we do this? To get really practical. Man, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we do this. We sit together as a family, united together as a family. We sing songs together And as we have said many times here at Sojourn, we don't only sing our songs to God, we sing it to one another. When you're having a hard day or a hard week, a hard month, a hard life, and you hear your brothers and sisters singing about God's grace towards you, that's encouraging to your soul. You need to gather with the church on Sundays for that reason. So we give grace to one another as we gather together. We do it as we gather in community groups throughout the week. As we get into smaller groups, being able to live life with one another, taking a sermon and seeking to speak it into each other's lives, saying, well, how are you doing this? How am I doing this? Brother, sister, would you hold me accountable to this? I need your help. I can't do this alone. It's good to be consistent with being involved in a community group. Having people who have sat under the word of God, preached, And they're going to hold you accountable to that. And you can hold them accountable. You can pray for one another. You can ask questions. You can speak grace into each other's lives. It's one of the reasons that we're seeking to do community groups the way that we are doing them. To take the sermon and take God's word. Seeing that as a a gift of grace to speak over you. And then seeking to apply it to your life. It's why we're encouraging you to be in a community group that's close to where you live. That God would give you more opportunities to develop relationships with people that live right around you so that you can give grace to one another. But man, the biggest thing, the biggest place, the biggest time that we can do this with one another is not just on Sundays. It's not just in a community group on a Wednesday night. It's all the time in all of life. It's having a meal with someone. It's texting them or calling them. This is not about an event As a community of grace, we give grace to one another when we are living life together. When we're actually participating in each other's lives. Seeking to be real friends with one another. Acting like we're a family. But see, if grace is what what we're going to give to one, one another, then we have to be real with one another also. 
when we understand grace, when we're a part of a community of grace, when we give grace to one another, that should give us rest and freedom, especially when we're weary. weary. It helps us to be who we are, not trying to pretend to be someone different. When we understand grace in the context of community, it should tear, tear down facades. It should rip off masks. It allows us to stop trying to be someone different or make it on our own. So do people know the real you? Do they get the real you? Are you present in community with other people? I mean, this is what it means to be a community that's only explainable because of the gospel. That we understand, that we understand grace, we understand the gospel, we understand where our identity is now. And so we can come in and be open and real with one another. And we look around and say, man, there's no reason for us to be friends with each other. There's no reason for us to be in close-knit relationship with each other because you're older and you're younger and you think these things about politics and I think these things and you like the cowboys and I like the redskins. There's just nothing in common we have with each other. No, there's everything in common because we all need grace. That's what a community looks like that's only explainable because of the gospel. Man, life is hard. We will struggle But sojourn, know this, God will not revoke his mercy or grace from you. Our community must know that. Our community must remember that and remind one another of that. Hear this this morning. His grace is sufficient for you. His mercies are new every morning. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning, especially this morning. And I hope that as a church, we always strive to encourage each other in grace every day, whether life is good or life is hard, whether we're rejoicing or when we're weary, as Brian said in his video. Sojourn, let's point each other to the grace we've received and the future grace that is to come, an eternal inheritance enjoyed in eternal life with our eternal God and King Let's encourage each other to live our lives every single day in light of the mercy and grace we've received. Now maybe as you sit here this morning, you recognize that you've never actually experienced God's grace. See, grace is what we give to one another as a church, but it's also what we offer to you this morning through Christ if you've never experienced God's grace. Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church in New York City, says this. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. Jesus himself said that his mission was to come for the sick, not the righteous. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you this morning recognize your need of grace? Do you recognize that there is nothing you bring, nothing you can do to earn forgiveness, to be in a relationship with God? You can't try hard enough. You can't do enough. Which is why Christ came to do everything that you can't do to be able to reconcile you to God so that you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed and be brought into a right relationship with God so you can have life now and forever. Do you recognize that? So man, if you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced God's grace, let me call you this morning to come to Christ today and come as you are. Come as you are. 
with all the brokenness and all the mess of your life, come as you are. Jesus calls you to himself today. See, when you look back on the history of God's people, what you see is not a stellar example of righteousness. What you see is an amazing picture of the radical, scandalous grace of our God. See, our God is proud to say that he's a God of abdicators, liars, murderers, adulterers, cowards, drunkards, sexually immoral, selfish, angry, false worshipers. Our God is a God of grace. So if you don't know him, would you come to him this morning? Would you avail yourself of the blood of Jesus today so that you can experience that grace? No matter what has happened in your life, no matter what is happening in your life right now, there is nothing too surprising for God's grace. There's nothing too outrageous for God's grace. It's for all people in all situations. And what we speak as a church over you this morning is grace. Sojourn, I don't want to be a community that's defined by anything else. I want to be a community that's defined by, marked by, and impacted by grace. Let's not be known for rules, but grace. Let's not be known for putting up facades, but grace. Let's be known for the scandalous truth of Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's be known for the scandalous truth of Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. As we close, hear these words from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sojourn this morning. Be reminded of who you were, but find hope and rest and freedom in who you are now. It's all because of grace, and it will always be because of grace. This is who you are, but this is who we are together. A community of grace. We can praise God for that because it's all that we have. As we come to the table this morning to take communion, we come to the table to partake in a family meal of grace. It's a reminder of grace. It's a means of grace to us. It reminds us that Christ's body was given for us. It reminds us of Christ's blood that was shed for us. It's a means of grace for us because it encourages our hearts. It supernaturally nourishes our souls. And it's a family meal because we come to the table together. That's why we ask you to get out of your seat and come forward so that we come to the same place together to partake of the bread and the cup together. So as you come forward this morning, be reminded of the truth that's in the verse in the hymn, Rock of Ages, that we sing, which is the truth of Titus 3. The author writes this, Nothing in my hands I bring. You come to the table empty-handed this morning. 
but simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so as you come to the table this morning, would you rejoice in the fact that God in his goodness and loving kindness appeared and saved you and saved your brothers and sisters, not because of anything you did, because of what Christ did for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because this meal is important to us. It is a testimony of God's grace that we are desperate for what Jesus has done for us, that we are in need of God's grace. There's nothing we can do on our own to be reconciled to God. And so if you haven't experienced that grace yet, we don't want you to come forward to take bread and take the cup. We want you to take Christ today. Instead of coming forward, you sit in your seat and cry out to God to save you today. That's what he came to do. That's what he desires to do. Would you turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus today? And if you don't know what that means, if you still have questions about what it looks like to experience God's grace through Christ, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to just walk with you, journey with you, with wherever you're at in your spiritual journey right now. That's why we're here as a church. But no, the message we're going to tell you is the message of grace. And those of you that will come forward this morning, I invite you to come whenever you're ready and you can come forward and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. And you can come whenever you're ready and you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Let's pray together. Father God, we are in awe. Lord, it's so counterintuitive to us. The gospel is counterintuitive to us. It doesn't make any sense that we don't do anything, that we can't do anything to earn favor with you, to make ourselves right with you. There's nothing we can pay back. There's nothing we can bring. We come empty-handed. And Lord, that's by your design. It's foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom from you, God, that you would send Christ your Son to die for us and by the power of your Spirit help us to see our need for grace that comes through Jesus' blood alone. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that as a church that we would rest in that, that we would find peace in that, that we would find freedom in that, that that is who we are now. We're reminded of who we used to be, but be reminded most importantly of who we are now because of your grace, not the works that we've done, but according to your mercy. And so, Lord, this morning as we come forward, I pray that we would be encouraged in the depths of our souls with that. And that as a church, that that would be what we're about. That would be what we're known for is being a community of grace that preaches and applies the gospel of grace to every aspect of life. Help us to rest in that this morning. Encourage our hearts today as we continue to sing and praise you today because of what you have done for us. Lord, we praise your name. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.